0: and answering charges against him of blaspheming the temple, the Moses, Moses and the law. And today we're going to finish up chapter 7 and begin a few verses of chapter 8, which culminates with Stephen's death. And we're going to see how his death glorifies God. Verse 51. Stephen continues, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So we see Stephen is answering charges by going through Israel's history of rejecting God's messengers, of not being open to the Holy Spirit and not being open to God doing something new. And you also see the parable of the wineskins here. Remember, the wine was a picture of the Holy Spirit. It would, as it would ferment physically, the Holy Spirit would always be moving and always be expanding. You can't contain God. The old wineskins were the old dead religious system. And even today, among Christendom, there's a lot of dead wineskins. And the new wine can't be poured into those wineskins. Otherwise, those wineskins are not elastic anymore. Okay? They, they burst. We have to always be open to God doing a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's now judging them instead of them judging him. He went from defense to offense, reminiscent in my mind of Matthew 23, when Jesus engages the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. One particular verse, Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So it was bad enough that they weren't getting into heaven, but with their doctrine, And with their deadness, they were preventing other people from getting into the kingdom of heaven. And Stephen uh, chastises them in three areas. uh, Attitude, actions, and amorality. Attitude. He calls them stiff-necked people. Well, that should ring your bell if you've uh, read the Old Testament. In Exodus 33, God calls his own people stiff-necked people, meaning unyielding stubbornness. Add to that, he said, you're uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Jeremiah 4, two verses, three through four, he says this, speaking for the Lord. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings kind of doesn't make sense in a physiological sense. And we talked a little bit about circumcision uh, last Sunday. It was the removal of the redundant tissue around a male's physical appendage. That's a a medical term there, make it sound better. But um, they followed that procedure religiously. It was a sign of the covenant covenant with the Jewish people and God. However, there was uh, foreskin around their hearts, Jeremiah talks about. Now physiologically, if you know anything about the heart, there is no foreskin around the heart, doesn't make sense physiologically, but of course he's speaking in a spiritual sense. Jeremiah is saying, and Stephen is reiterating, remove the redundant, useless garbage that is gathered around your heart in a spiritual sense. The dead religious practices were replacing a relationship with God. They were just going through the motions. And before I was born again, I, w- I was part of the big three in Christian religion, And I thought I was cool. Everything was great. But you know what I did? I went through the motions, the rituals. And and you know what? I lived anything but a Christian. So my heart needed to be checked, too. And Jesus got a hold of my heart, obviously. So attitude. The second thing is actions. They had a murderous past and a murderous future. And this was not befitting for shepherds of Israel. Zechariah 11 in the Old Testament. God says, woe to the worthless shepherds. The shepherd is supposed to care for his sheep. He's supposed to help them grow. In a a spiritual sense, a shepherd, a leader, a religious leader, a pastor, a minister, is supposed to care for his sheep, is supposed to love them, is supposed to build them up in the word of God. And these leaders at the time, in Zechariah's time, were not doing that. In contrast to that, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Now, you saw the way they did it. Now, look at me. Look at my example as the good shepherd. Over time, or one more thing, the last thing is amorality. They had the law, and they boasted about it, but they didn't honestly keep it. And over time, they traded their relationship with God for religiosity. So young, I I tell you what, I studied under Lloyd Pulley for 10 years, pretty much, and I learned a lot. And the biggest thing, of course, I learned, which we all should learn, is Jesus is the way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. But something that is attached to that, that I think is one of the most important things I understood about the teaching of the Bible was that we're to have a relationship with God. You know, we're supposed to have that relationship, just like we have a relationship with people we love, maybe children, maybe a spouse, maybe parents, siblings. God wants a relationship with us. And the cool thing is last Sunday, I mean, I really hit that point home in addition to the gospel. Last Sunday, a young uh, lady came up to me, real happy, real bright-eyed, and she said, Pastor Joe, I finally get the whole relationship thing. Tell you what, that really encouraged me, so I know I'm doing my job, right? So, uh, you know, it's about a relationship with God. Now, Stephen, going back to Stephen, he did really well up to verse 51 that we're reading today. No doubt Stephen would have been a free man. He spoke about the history of Israel. He spoke about the different patriarchs. No doubt these religious leaders were saying, hmm, he's not so bad. This guy really knows his his Jewish history and the guy didn't have any notes, right? He just was reciting it from memorization. So why did Stephen make waves and lose his life? He was a free man as far as I was concerned. Two points I want to bring up regarding that. One, this is a good proof text against ecumenism for the sake of ecumenism. What is ecumenism? It's the doctrine that uh, we're supposed to have, all the faiths are supposed to come together, lay aside behavior, lay aside doctrine. It's more important that we're unified, especially in any Christendom, even remote Christendom. Uh, False doctrines, cults, whatever, we're supposed to unite under ecumenism. That's a problem because doctrine is thrown out the window and behavior is thrown out the window. It's getting along for the sake of getting along. And, you know, in the book of Revelation, we see the false prophet tries to do the same thing. He tries to rally all the religions together, find that common ground and have everybody worship under the same altar. Well, that's a problem. If that was the case, Stephen would have made nice with them and he would have lived a longer life. However, Second Corinthians six, Paul tells us light hath no fellowship with darkness, nor Christ with Belial. We can't be unequally yoked with damning doctrine. All right, and Stephen is making sure he points that out. Let me explain. Again, Paul, Jesus, the people in those days used very simple things. It was an agrarian society to help people get mental pictures of what the observable world was and how they could tie that into spiritual truth. So unequally yoked. You had the upside-down wooden W with a bar and then a a long piece connected to a plow. Uh, And usually a team of oxen would would plow uh, on that yoke, And then, you know, the the plow would be behind them, and the oxen would would break up the the ground. Now, unequally yoked was a picture of you would put a a, a donkey, a little donkey, with a big ox, in a sense, and you put them under the same yoke with that plow and say, go ahead, mush, break up the ground. They have a different gait as animals. They have a different size, a different strength, and a different stubbornness potential. And what you would find is if you put two unequally yoked animals together, they would actually do less work than one of those animals by themselves. And Paul makes a great, of course, led by the Holy Spirit, Paul makes a great analogy here. Now, most of us think of unequally yoked, if you know the Bible, as a marriage thing. If you go into a marriage with somebody, you want to, if you're on fire for the Lord, and you marry someone, well, I love that person, but they have no interest in the Lord, you're going to have problems once you get married. You're going to be pulling in different directions, and nothing's going to get done. So, but we, we can't just look at that in the context of marriage. We have to look at that in this context, too, with what, what, we, what do we yoke ourselves with in life. Who do we yoke ourselves with in life? We can disagree on extraneous issues. We could talk about, and I, I fellowship with many pastors from many different denominations. Denomination is not the issue. How we dress uh, at church is not the issue. The type of worship that we have is not the issue. But what is an issue and what is non-negotiable is the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. These are the the important things that we cannot, uh, salvation by faith, you know, we're justified by God. It's nothing that man can do to earn a salvation. It's all done by God. The second thing we can learn from this, uh, learn from Stephen, is that this is a great proof text against soft preaching, which is far too common in America's pulpits. So many people are hooked on positive confession as Christians. The prosperity doctrine. Well, sure, you're going to fill up. And these churches fill up because they, they appeal to people's greed. Well, you could be a Christian, and if you are a Christian, God's going to make you rich. Wow, I want to be a Christian. You know, if you, if you become a Christian, you'll never get sick again. God's going to make you well all the time. Gee, where do I sign up? And I'll give you my 10%. You know, I want to do that. But it's not not reflected in scripture, the prosperity doctrine. It's almost like coming to church and winning the lottery. You know, God's the big lotto guy in in the sky, and it doesn't work like that. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of the secret. The secret, it, it comes and goes, and now it's been revived again. Well, Google the secret and stay away from the secret after you do some research. The secret is based on the law of attraction. And the law of attraction, of course, this isn't a real physical law. It's something somebody made up. The law of attraction says, if I want to be successful and I want to be rich, all I have to do is think I'm going to be successful. Night and day, I'm going to be successful. No, this is really what it is. And then you surround yourself with people who are successful. You get rid of all your loser friends who are not rich, and you hang out with successful people, right? And eventually, you'll become successful and rich. The law of attraction. I got news for you. Look in the Old Testament. This is witchcraft, okay? It's tantamount to witchcraft. And uh, basically, it's blaming the victim. If time goes by and you're not successful, it's your fault because you didn't follow the law of attraction. So in this stuff, it creeps into the church. It's amazing how many churches go with every wind of doctrine. Oh, this is something new. Let's incorporate it in our church and Bible studies. No, this is our guideline. This is our template. And there's a host of other feel-good messages to lull us to sleep spiritually. We, and it was, this was great to have Jackie up here because it's a different life. She's out there eating chicken heads, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but uh, she goes to this country and people live there so in so much poverty that they, there's nothing that's spared on the animal. That's, and, and here in America, how much stuff do we throw out? Restaurants, you know, they throw out meals and food and bread. And in other countries, forget about it. They don't throw anything away. And according to this this nonsense that's being preached, uh, Stephen's life would have been spared. Let's take the secret and the law of attraction and positive confession, all that stuff, and let's put it back on Stephen. Well, Stephen was a failure because if he would have taken the secret in a different route and evoked all these positive thoughts while the rocks were flying, well, those rocks would have went and not hit him in the head and he would be alive today, right? So you can see how this stuff is silly. Verse 51. Stephen says again, you stiff neck and uncircumcised and hardening ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Boy, that was a mouthful. What do you think, again, let's bring Stephen to now our society, right? Let's bring him up 2,000 years. What do you think the media would report If Stephen was a contemporary preacher and he preached that message publicly today, what would the headlines would have read, right? They would have said he's intolerant, he's divisive, he's judgmental, he's mean-spirited, and he's downright unchristian. But this guy was received by Jesus Christ. We'll see. Jesus Christ stood up to receive Stephen. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to follow the guy that follows Jesus, okay? I'm not going to follow what the media says of, of, of what we should be doing. And they want, it, they want to um, make us live in fear of what we should preach because it doesn't go with what society likes, the mores of society. But Stephen, I also think of, um, as a, I, I get the Berean call, uh, Dave Hunt, he's got to be in his 80s now. And at, you know what's, what's really great about being in your 80s? You don't care what people think about you anymore. <laughs> so man, that's one thing to definitely look forward to. And he doesn't. But what he does is he takes excerpts from f- false doctrine, you know, whatever the cult is. He takes it and he puts it in his, his periodical verbatim, uh, announces the source, the year, etc. And then he says, and this is what the Bible says, and this is why they don't agree. Well, you've got to see all the hate mail that this guy gets. I never heard him call anybody stupid or, or idiot or character assassination. But all he does is he takes their doctrine puts it next to the Bible, and it says they don't, they don't measure up. Make a decision which one you want to follow. And the guy's totally vilified for that. Now, so let's go back to Stephen. Stephen's not character assassinating anybody. He's telling the truth. Let's look at some of these prophets. Uriah, not the Uriah of Bathsheba, a different Uriah, or Urijah, the prophet. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, Zechariah, Elijah, John, Jesus, and now Stephen himself although Stephen wasn't a particular prophet in the strictest sense of the word, but he was killed for the testimony of God. These prophets were not a success story. Most of these guys had their lives cut short. They're not a success story according to what Americans think, right? I guess nobody told these guys about the secret. So on a personal note, we all want peace, but there comes a point in time where God's people can't go with the flow for the sake of peace. There's a crossroads in every Christian's life where we have to give up our comfort, and we have a lot of comforts here, to serve and glorify God. And usually, to serve and glorify God, we have to give up some comfort. Okay? Usually, there's, there's an issue there. Or we can stay shallow for the sake of peace, for the sake of a promotion, for the sake of a friendship, a relationship, Or status in society unfortunately because I fall into the category two when one of these things are challenged God makes you make a decision do you want to glorify me and follow me wholeheartedly or do you want to hang on to these worldly things and that's a tough thing as as us because we're by nature self-preservating people right we're by nature looking out for ourselves whether we want to admit it or not by nature we're self-centered in my 39 years of life, God's never given me an instance where I walk the day in someone else's shoes. Because I've always seen things from my two eyes, not from anybody else's. And we're all like that. So, but Stephen couldn't look the other way while these false shepherds were leading God's people down the wrong path. Stephen certainly is a hero of faith and obedience. 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. These people were cut to the heart. They were pierced to the deepest level of their being. The sword of the spirit was cutting the redundant tissue. I love this scripture in Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We must give an account. So you see the sword of the Spirit. And in a nutshell, what God's Word does is it cuts through the nonsense. Whatever debate you're having, whatever argument, whatever issue, whatever marital problem, when the sword of the Spirit comes in, when God's Word comes in, It cuts through all the nonsense. It slashes and slices and it gets to the heart of the issue. It reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from God's sight. We all must give an account to him. Whatever your issues are, whatever our issues are, we have to give an account to him. So that being said, Stephen was certainly cutting through the redundancy of these people's hearts. However, what was the response? Was it repentance? No, we don't see repentance here. They gnashed their teeth, which was a term which meant a clenching of the teeth, a rage, and a possible profanity being used, and some, some people believe. But this is reminiscent to me of the medieval church trials, where the religious deadness was toppled by God's word. God's word was translated to the vernacular so that people could understand it, and it was also spread by the Gutenberg printing press. If you look up your history, Gutenberg, um, not not the actor, but... The, the guy who first invented the printing press. A lot of that, the Bible was used. It's amazing how God used these, these brilliant people to have these inventions, and a lot of these inventions furthered the word of God. The printing press was one of them. In the church's own archives, in Fox's Book of the Martyrs, shows that hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of peoples were killed, Huguenots, Waldenses, Anabaptists, Jews, to preserve religion. Many men and women were martyred for simply believing God over church tradition and translating the Bible into the modern vernacular. But we see here that Stephen saw a vision. All scriptures from Psalm 110 to Hebrews, all the way up to Hebrews 12, pictures the Messiah seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Uh, For those of you who are familiar, especially with Psalm 110, Jesus is seated, the Messiah is seated at the right hand of the Father after the ascension. That's where his position is. But here... In, in, in a pretty unique portion of scripture, we see Jesus standing, and that's significant. This standing was a picture of honor and reception. You know, uh, I'm really blessed to have my wife because she's really good with etiquette, and I'm kind of really not good with etiquette. <laughs> At one time, somebody approached me, and I was sitting down engrossed in what I was doing, and I, I shook their hand while I was sitting down. And later she rebuked me and said, when somebody comes up to greet you, you stand and receive them and shake their hand. It's disrespectful to sit and shake their hand. And I was like, so now every time I'm tempted to just sit there, I think about getting up, right? <laughs> I'm thankful for my wife. Without her, I'd be an uncultured bore, right? But um, this was probably Jesus' cue to Stephen that it was time, okay? I could just picture Jesus saying, that's my boy. Or, Stephen, it's time to come home. And eventually the famous, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Uh, recently, I, I received a book that I had on back order since last year. Uh, for months, we've had this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it's historical accounts, no, no legend in here, taken from actually archives and uh, you know, information and historical sources, and compiled about basically all the Christian martyrs from Stephen up until the modern day, and it's revised every so many years. I think they say that more Christians have been martyred in the last 10 years than in all of history. Uh, so this is a great book, and I don't think it's a coincidence that I got it this week. I started reading it, and I couldn't put it down. The historical accounts are fascinating. But what I found a lot of, in a, a lot of the common themes here was when it was a Christian's time to be martyred, to die a martyr's death, they would often be singing, praying, praising, and had unusual displays of bravery and strength. Almost as if, like Stephen... They saw something that their tormentors didn't see. And many were led to Christ through their example, because a lot of these things were public, right? I'll just read to you two of them. One is, uh, Polycarp. And Polycarp, if you know your biblical history, was discipled by John, the Apostle John. Polycarp lived, uh, from, let's see, AD 70 to 155. Polycarp was an elderly man in his 80s. He was renowned follower of Christ and bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp had become a Christian under the tutelage of John the Apostle. Recently, the Roman proconsul had been looking for him for days. After arresting and torturing one of Polycarp's servants, they finally learned where he was staying. The soldiers came into the house, but instead of fleeing, Polycarp calmly stated, God's will be done. Polycarp asked that food be brought for the soldiers, and he requested an hour for prayer. Amazed by Polycarp's fearlessness, especially for a man his age, the hardened Roman soldiers granted his request. And they did uh, admire, the soldiers definitely admired strength. That was what the whole Roman thing was about. He prayed for two hours for all the Christians he knew and for the universal church and the soldiers led him. The proconsul continued, swear and I will let you go, reproach Christ. Polycarp turned to the proconsul and boldly declared, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call them, for we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse, but it is noble to turn from what is evil and do what is righteous. Then the proconsul threatened Polycarp with fire, but he responded, you threaten me with a fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you want. But when they were going to nail him, he told them, they were going to nail him to a stake and burn him. He said, leave me like this. He who gives me to endure the fire will also give me to remain on the pyre without your security from the nails. And of course, Polycarp was martyred. One for the women. um, I want to read one more here. Perpetua and Felicity, circa 203 A.D., Perpetua bravely held Felicity in her arms, anticipating their death together as sisters in Christ. The bull's horns had already wounded Felicity, and the crowd wanted to coup de gras. Then abruptly and inexplicably, the bull stood still. The crowd hushed. This animal was not following the script. Now the crowd let loose with demands for blood, and gladiators rushed forward to finish the work. Felicity died quickly. When Perpetua's executioner hesitated, she herself helped guide his blade into her body. Perpetua came from a wealthy family, but Felicity was a slave. When prison guards wondered how she, Felicity, would handle facing the beast in the arena, especially so soon after her child's birth, she responded, Now my sufferings are only mine, but when I face the beast, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me since I shall be suffering for him. These two women from different classes showed fortitude, determination, and remarkably even joy at the prospects of public humiliation and suffering. Several times they refused offers of acquittal and ignored pleas to save themselves. Together they clung to heavenly hope and to each other for endurance through the ordeal. Rather than acquiesce to Roman demands, they asked to be baptized while in prison. Perpetua stated, the dungeon is to me a palace. Amazingly, when Perpetua was told Beasts would devour her, she and her companions returned to prison in high spirits at the prospect of death for the glory of God. As for Perpetua, she was the picture of poise in the center of chaos and blood. When the bull tossed her but did not hurt her, Perpetua's hair came undone. She asked to be allowed to put her hair up because undone was a sign of mourning, but this day was a day of triumph and joy. Such encourage made a mark on the Romans. These three women, there was another one, and Christians had stood together and died together. Several spectators converted to Christianity as a result, including the governor of Rome. Pretty amazing. Now, this is foreign to us in our country. However, uh, if you follow overseas news and missions news, this is happening every day in other countries. It's almost like we're on a different planet than the United States. But it doesn't mean that persecution can't come our way. And how would we handle it? So verse 56, we see that heaven opens. In Revelation 4, chapter 4 in the beginning, and Revelation 19, at the end of chapter 19, we see that heaven again, the the door of heaven opens. Now, normally, heaven's doors have been closed since the fall of man, but they do open to receive mankind since Christ's resurrection. And another thing that we see here is that it's not Peter at the pearly gates, but Jesus himself. The only way to get in is to know Jesus, to know him. We can't fake a relationship with him. We can't disguise ourselves as another believer or ride somebody's coattails. Now, I could be a little crusty at times, and everybody loves Pastor Anthony. So I can't go up to heaven and put on a fake goatee and say, hey, let me in. I'm, I'm Anthony DeBrito." right? <laughs> you got to get in on your own. You have to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior to be able to have those doors of heaven open to you. You must recognize, Jesus must recognize you as one of his own or his responsible you for you will be. Depart from me. I never knew you. Go to the place, a place of eternal torment that was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's not something we want to hear. We want to hear, as in Stephen's case, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And the question is, do you know him? If not, why not? And if not, would you like an opportunity to know him? Because at the end of the service, we'll give you that opportunity. One of our elders, Art Kiefer, uh, if somebody was to say, Jesus Christ, in a, in a way of blaspheming or, or anger, you know, Art would respond, oh, you know him? And usually their response would be one of awkwardness or apology, because they don't know him. They're just using his name like that. And let me, let me explain the difference between knowing him versus knowing of him. I believe, as a citizen of the United States, that we should have a civic responsibility to know who our elected officials are, who's the governor, who are our senators, who's the president. Now, we've had a president for uh, almost eight years now, and he, I can tell you what his party affiliation is. I could probably tell you um, that he's got two daughters, a wife, uh, a dog. I could tell you a lot of information about the president, uh, even maybe what type of t- ties he wears and what maybe legislation he's vetoed. However, so I know of him. However, if I go up to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., and knock on the door and say, hey, is George home? I'd like to go for coffee with him. They'll kindly escort me off the premises and maybe send me for a psych evaluation. However, if I'm one of his children and I walk up to the door, I won't even have to knock. I can just open the door and fellowship with him and hug him or do whatever because I'm one of his children. You see, there's a difference between knowing of Jesus and knowing Jesus. Many people know of Jesus, but they don't know him. And in order to receive, to be received into everlasting habitations, We have to know him. And we're going to give that opportunity. So, what does it take to get into heaven? To quote or to steal some lyrics from Huey Lewis, it don't take money, it don't take fame, don't take no credit card to ride on this train. That was for Josh. (laughs) All it takes is repentance. And we've talked over and over about what repentance is just to say, I've come this far in my life, Lord. I want to start doing it your way. I want to turn from my ways and follow you, Lord. What do you have to say about my life? What do you have to say about my marriage? Repent and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That faith will start off small in the beginning, but it will grow over time. And that's what it takes to be received. So we see two ways of life contrasted. We see the spirit-filled life versus the carnal life. And you can see this in the fruit of the spirit versus the works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. And what are the works of the flesh? Usually just the opposite. Adultery, fornication, licentiousness, contentions, hatreds, jealousies, sorceries, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, and on and on and on. Right? And you see a good example of the difference between somebody who's leading a Spirit-filled life here and it's someone who's doing the works of the flesh, because they are at war, at war with each other. These leaders rushed Stephen. Now, these are religious men. They rushed Stephen. They profaned him. They shouted. They stopped their ears, and they committed murder. Stephen looked into heaven. He discerned the Lord. He didn't repay evil for evil, and he forgave his killers. I'll tell you what. Stephen has such a short, short place in Scripture, but he has such a powerful, powerful life. And his life is such a great example to us and the life that we should leave. Do we have the fruits of the spirit? Do we exhibit them? Or do we mostly exhibit <laughs> or do we mostly exhibit uh, you know the works of the flesh? We were coming home from the baptism yesterday, and uh, you know I was a little bit in a hurry, and I went to pass a car, and my wife sat with me, and she tapped me on the hand and she said, "Remember, you're the pastor. You could be passing one of the people who are at the baptism." Good point, honey. <laughs> It's so great I got her. She's the best, man. I tell you, she really helps me. Verse 58. We see that uh, Stephen was cast out of the city and stoned, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul, uh, in verse eight or chapter eight, verse one, was consenting to his death. So what we see is that the last thing that Saul sees, who later becomes the apostle Paul through conversion, was forgiveness connection with God, submission, Stephen was kneeling, and acceptance. And we see in Acts chapter 2, when we get to it, that Paul couldn't erase, even after he became a Christian, couldn't erase the vision and the example that Stephen set at his deathbed. Verse 59 through 60, we see that uh, Stephen emulated his Lord. He died saying much of what Jesus said on the cross. Don't hold us to their account. What do people in their last words say before they're going to die? They may be cursing. They may be quiet. They may uh, say a host of other things. What did Jesus say? And what did Stephen say? Don't hold us to their account, Lord. And we are living in the age of grace, the church age. And there will come a point in time where that grace will have run its course. The Bible's clear on that. In the Old Testament, especially David, you know, Break their teeth, and precatory prayers. Lord, I don't like my enemies. Can you destroy them, right? And then what happens is with the age of grace and the church age, starting with Jesus, he said, don't hold us to their account. Totally different than what David prayed about his enemies. Stephen, the first martyr, Fox's book of martyrs, all the way up to a point where that's going to go back again, okay? And what I mean by that is in Revelation 6, and when the fifth seal is broken, we see martyrs in heaven And they um, are asking the Lord to avenge their blood. They're in heaven, and they're asking the Lord, "Those people on earth who killed us, avenge them." You'll see it. Read it in the Scripture for yourself. Uh, So the way I look at that is, again, that's a good uh, portion of Scripture for the pre-trib rapture. In other words, there's an age of grace. There's a time that it runs out. The clock stops ticking, and then the seven years, which we uh, covered, the seventh week of the seventieth week of Daniel comes into play. The church is removed. And everything kind of comes, goes back to the way it was in the Old Testament, in a sense. And then the Jewish people, have, you know, they get the mark, the 144,000, and God doesn't give his seal for no reason. Most likely, these 144,000 are going to be Jewish evangelists who, who scour the earth, telling people about the Messiah, right? And Stephen fell asleep. This was euphemistic for as Stephen died. And it's truly a state similar to sleep. The body is, for a time, separated from the spirit, but... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So when we die, who we are, our consciousness, our, our um, was it sentiency or our, the, uh, the ability of being aware of everything that's going around you, it goes from the body to be with the Lord. So your consciousness is going to be with the Lord, who you are, your essence. But the body dies. And there'll be a point where God reunites the body in a perfected state, back with the consciousness, and will be spiritual beings, okay? So the question is, was Stephen's life a waste of life? Well, I don't think so. Tertullian wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the, seed of the, is the seed of the church. And we'll see later that the Apostle Paul was certainly seeded from this. Chapter 8, few verses, 1 through 4. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And the devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, I don't know if I, I brought this point off, but um, consenting to his death, Paul consented to the death. He's saying, I agree with this. Now, what that shows is that Saul had, even though he was young, the Bible says, he had some authority and respect in the council. As a matter of fact, they send him out to persecute these Christians with authority. Okay, so that's important to note. And we'll see how Saul's life changes. But the scattering of the church. Remember Jesus spoke of this in Acts 1.8? Jesus said that the gospel will go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, the persecution was the impetus to help spread that gospel, as we see. Persecution arose, and it's funny, we think bad, 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 but God has a plan. He used the persecution to spread the people out and scatter the gospel to all the corners of the earth. The word scatter in the Greek is diaspora, okay, and in English, we get the word spore from. If you ever look at one of those dictionaries, and you can see the, uh, you can see the, the root words and where they come from, a lot of it comes from the Greek but the word spore comes from this Greek word. So scattering, spore, and what it shows you is that the scattering was more of a seeding, like a plant spore or a mold spore. Eventually it it goes and it it seeds again, it reseeds. So we see that the the gospel had to be distributed through the persecution and the fruit was the, the, the scattering or the seeding of the church to all these areas and then fruit cropped up. One other thing is Saul, he, he goes through a stage of madness. <laughs> he just gets more crazy with this whole thing with Stephen. And he starts to persec- persecute the church. He binds men and women. He drags them out of the, their homes. And he takes them before the councils to persecute them for their disbelief system. The irony is Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. Now becomes this great pillar of the church. And he goes before Nero. Now if you look at history, look at Roman history, Nero in the beginning was a great emperor. Uh, you know, for, for a pagan, he was pretty good as far as what he did in the Roman Empire. He built projects, he was, seemed very level-headed. Now, there was a point in time in history where Nero kind of went batty. You know, he went out of his mind. But if you look at history, it was about the time that Saul went before him. Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, witnesses to Nero, Nero rejects it and goes, you know, does all these crazy things. And you read about Nero. He's one of the most infamous emperors of the Roman Empire. So there's a little irony there. Now, all this. Let's let's take let's get two caveats here regarding this whole martyr, martyrdom thing. In the Greek, the word mar- martyr for martyr is marturas, which really just means witness. It doesn't necessarily mean somebody has to die. But when Christianity started, your witness a lot of times was a death sentence because you were in a pagan a pagan, uh, a pagan uh, government and they demanded that people bow to their gods, and if you didn't, they would kill you because they felt that it was a sign of disloyalty. So, marturas, witness, two things. Number one, uh, most of us probably won't be called to this type of death. You know, we live in the United States. So, um, you know, that's probably, I'm not sitting here saying, let's all become martyrs, right? However, and another thing that's important is you hear a lot about martyrs today. What does contemporary martyrdom make you think of? It makes you think of Islamic fanaticism, okay? There's a difference. The difference is, The Christian martyrs didn't kill anybody. They they had no choice. They were being arrested, they were being killed, and they went peaceably to their deaths. The martyrs we see today, they think that God will be pleased with them if they strap explosives to their chest and blow up women and children on a bus. Totally different animal, same word, different meanings. So let's you know, let's look at what the world looks at martyrdom today versus what true martyrdom was. But Stephen's life, was it a waste of life? Again when you consider the effect that he had on Paul the Apostle and his conversion, and when you consider the fact that Paul did incredible miracles and he had incredible contributions to the church and to the Lord Jesus and Christianity as a result of Stephen's testimony, no, it wasn't a waste of life. I'm going to close with two more testimonies. One, I have to get as much mileage as I can out of this book. One is William Tyndale. and Many of you have heard that name before. 1494 to 1536 A.D. William Tyndale was a well-educated scholar who was frustrated at the distance between English education and the Bible, the source of truth. Studying at Oxford and then at Cambridge, he bristled at the barriers and longed for the nourishment his mind and heart treasured. For him, the Bible for the people would become the answer to corruption in the church. So what he did was he took from the Greek and Hebrew text and he worked to create a Bible in vernacular English. Tyndale traveled to Germany where he completed the New Testament in 1525. Tyndale knew when he was eventually, the English agents caught up with him and they took him to trial for the big crime of letting people read the Bible in their own language. Tyndale knew how these trials ran. He would have no chance at defense, and death was the remedy. With his body shaking from cold and the winter's light dim from writing, he worked to complete the English Bible helped by a sympathetic prison governor. Secured to the stake, okay, this is where they're going to burn him at the stake, surrounded by brush and logs, Tyndale was heard to pray, one of the last things he said before he died was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Then the executioner snapped hard on the rope, strangling Tyndale before the blaze consumed his body. He was afraid of those words. The final prayer was for the bully, King Henry VIII, whose pursuit of a male heir had already cost Anne Boleyn her life and Catherine her marriage. So full of his own pomp and power, Would this king's eyes ever fall favorably on Tyndale's English Bible? Indeed, they did. Two years after Tyndale's death, King Henry authorized the distribution of the Matthew Bible, much of it Tyndale's work. And then in 1539, all printers and sellers of books were ordered by the king to provide for the free and liberal use of the Bible in our own maternal English tongue. Tyndale's dream and his last earthly appeal had come true. It's amazing. So what we do see around the world today is that hundreds of thousands of people throughout the world lose their lives um, every year in the world, attaining no spiritual rewards. But no life is ever a wasted life if if it is snuffed out in the uh, commission of giving honor and glory to God. Last uh, testimony, and then we'll go to prayer. 1956, and many of you have heard this. Jim Elliott Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, Roger Udurian. These men were missionaries to the Wadani tribe of Indians, a very violent tribe in Ecuador, uh, where the movie The End of the Spear was made after. Um, it's, it's long, so I'm going to just take excerpts from it. Within two years after the deaths of these five men, Jim Elliott's widow and Nate Saint's sister made a friendly and lasting contact with the Wadanis. Bible translation into the Wadani language began. One by one, the men who committed the murder became believers in the one who sent the missionaries to reach them. Steve Saint, Steve Saint spent much of his childhood among the Wodani. Steve Saint was Nate Saint's son, son of the man who was one of the men who were murdered. Despite the fact that they had killed his father, Steve became an adopted son of the tribe and eventually took his own family to live for a time among them. The painful arrival of the gospel among that violent people worked a miracle of transformation. Now, this is where they go into the, uh, the actual history. The Wadanis recount, the, they actually recounted to these people how they killed their loved ones. It says, once the possibility of killing was raised, the general tone in the tribal group shifted to well-established patterns for preparation for battle. They knew the white men had guns. They didn't know they, would u- they wouldn't use them. Several of the Wodani's reported hearing strange supernatural voices and seeing moving lights in the sky during the attack as if God sent an angelic choir to celebrate the faithfulness and the homecoming of his loyal servants. Steeped in generations of horrific hand-to-hand combat, combined with the heightened memory that tends to characterize verbal cultures, the Wodani display an amazing capacity for remembering the details of battle. This was their whole life, battle. Reminiscing by a fire late at night, the aging warriors gave an account of this event, still amazed that the white men had done nothing to defend themselves. Steve, saint, learned that Minkeye, who had become a father to him, had actually been the one who dealt the death blow to his biological father. As soon as he knew, Steven, Steve didn't realize realized it didn't really matter. What mattered was that God had used an amazing mixture of spiritual weapons, including the deaths of five servants, to defeat the power of fear and violence that kept the Wodani captive as far as they could remember. In his book, The End of the Spear, Steve reports that he had been frequently asked over the years about the struggle he must have experienced to forgive those who had taken his father from him. He he responded that it was never a struggle for him. Even to his grieving five-year-old mind, the death of his father and friends had been a part of God's plan. You don't have to forgive someone whom you have never held responsible for an act. True to the maker and and mover behind the scenes, the story of the Wadani displays God's ways. Those who were once the impossible to reach are now taking their place among those who reach out. Believers among the Wodani have suffered for Christ and at least one has experienced martyrdom. Their long history with violence makes them keen observers of the state of the modern world where the increasing fascination and practice of hatred, violence, and killing appear all too familiar for those recently freed from that life of despair. God's deeper purposes take time to come to light occasionally. Those who are paying attention get to see those purpose your shine and are amazed. It's pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? I read this stuff and and I read these accounts and say, Lord, I'm immature. I mean, I'm just honest. I got a long way to go because I'm not there. Um, Being in law enforcement for 15 years, I've always been taught to react to violence and to put violence down. And I tell you, sometimes I feel a little bipolar as a pastor and a police officer. I go back and forth, you know? So I just have to rely on God every day. And I just think it's good every once in a while, well, to, as a pastor, to be transparent with you and to be honest and say, listen, I'm human like the rest of you. So I just need you to know that. Stephanus, okay, Greek, or Stephen's name in the Greek means garland or a victor's crown. He earned it, as did many who died after giving glory to God. My prayer is for a great revival in the heart of the worldly Western Christian church. Again, a lot of this stuff is foreign to us. And for this passage of Scripture to give us new vision to live for glorifying glorifying God in our lives, however God wants us to do that. Let's pray. Once in a while, we'll...